Oh, Father, we long for the day when not just a few dozen voices gathered in one place here and another place there and maybe a few hundred more in another place or several thousand in yet another place, but the whole of your gathered people will sing to you their praises, delighting in your glory, wondering at your grace, marveling at your mercy. We long for that day. But until it comes, O Lord, again our prayer is that you would use these gifts and use us so that the gospel might be seen and heard in this place and even to the ends of the earth for the praise and honor of the name of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me to Romans chapter 12, the first two verses. And we will read these verses yet again. And if you're at a place where you can close your eyes and recite them silently as I read them, all the better. Romans 12, beginning at verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Let's pray together. Lord uh, Jesus, we come again to these verses Extracting from this mine of rich spiritual truth what we need for the living of the Christian life, but we cannot do it without the aid and the help of your Spirit. And so come help us. Open our minds, open our hearts, incline our hearts that they might be shaped and molded so that our wills, having been themselves energized by these truths, might go from this place to be the people in the midst of the world that you would delight for us to be. Come, Holy Spirit of God, and help us. We need it, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. If you could take... um, H.G. Wells' Time Machine, you know, you've read H.G. Wells, right, The Time Machine. Maybe you saw the movie. If you could hop on H.G. Wells' Time Machine and ride backward about 200 and, oh, let's say 60 or 65 years, you might find yourself in Northampton, Massachusetts. And if you found yourself in Northampton, Massachusetts, you might find yourself on a Sabbath morning in a service being led by Jonathan Edwards, and you, and you might uh, actually hear Jonathan Edwards preach. And there would be several things that would strike you as being very dissimilar to your experience uh, today. You, you quite likely would have walked, and you quite likely would have walked some distance to get to his church. And if you didn't walk, you quite likely 
would have ridden a horse or maybe come in a buggy. Um, and uh, it may have been cooler since this is September, but it also could have been in July, and it could have been dreadfully hot. And that might be the second thing you'd notice, that the interior of the building would have felt a good bit different from how this building feels. Here's, a, here's another thing, a third thing that you quite likely would have noticed. You would have noticed that the service went even longer than this service goes. And you would have noticed, no doubt, that the preaching went even longer than the preaching in this service goes. And then if you'd been paying attention, you would have noticed maybe yet another thing, particularly if you had been a congregant at Jonathan Edwards Church or uh, perhaps another of the New England Puritan uh, churches, congregational churches, ministers were Puritans you probably would have noticed, been able to detect that their preaching, not just here in the United States, but actually going back to England, followed a particular form. And this was the basic form that their preaching would follow. It would follow three basic headings, and and each sermon would reflect these three basic headings. Doctrine, reason, and use. Each passage would be teased out, pulled apart, in order to extract from that passage the teaching, what the doctrine was. But then this next thing, very interestingly, would happen with Puritan preaching. Reason. What is meant by reason? Well, here's what the Puritans knew was going on in the minds and the hearts of their listeners. They knew the realities, and they they wouldn't have been offending anybody in this, and I'm not offending you in this, but they would have known that in the hearts of those who were listening, there was this residue of resistance and unbelief. And there would have been all kinds of reasons that would have emerged as the doctrine was taught, reasons that the heart would conjure up from the depths of itself, reasons to oppose the things that were being said, reasons not to believe the things that were being said. And so the ministers, the preachers, would engage their congregants, engaging their hearts, And if you've read anything of Jonathan Edwards, if you know of him and his story, his biography at all, this is something you can conclude about Jonathan Edwards and you can conclude it about all of his peers who were similarly disposed. You can know that Jonathan Edwards wrestled deeply with his own heart before he ever got into a pulpit presuming to wrestle with the hearts of his congregants. And so the reasons he was dealing with, these reasons of resistance to embrace and believe and act upon the doctrine that was being taught were reasons that he found being conjured up from the depths of his own soul. Doctrine and then reason, dealing with the reasons, the specific reasons for resistance and unbelief. And then, having knocked down the resistance, So you see, there's the positive articulation of the doctrine. 
And then there is the work, you could call it a kind of a negative work, of getting the resistance out of the way. Then the preacher would go on to use. What does this mean practically for you? What are the practical implications of this teaching for you? How are you going to live this and work this out in your experience? And they do all of this in one sermon. Week by week by week by week. This sermon is a use sermon. We've been dealing through these verses, 1 and 2, with some of the principles that Paul is articulating here regarding change. And that's what this passage is about, right? It's about change. It's about metamorphosis. It's about transformation. The gospel is about change. The gospel is about us being different. The gospel is about us being delivered from something into something. Becoming something. And we've been looking at some principles, some ideas that are incredibly important. And as we come to this idea, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Before we get to that, I want to get to some use. And I want to tell you, folks, this is not theoretical stuff, at least for me. I want to tell you that as we've worked through this and as I've thought about these verses and tried to extract these gems out of these verses, and I think I've said this at some point in the recent past, I've been convicted about my own life. And there are a couple of areas in my own life that I've been convicted about. And you don't need to know what they are. What you do need to know is that one of them I've struggled against, I feel like, the whole of my life as a Christian. And the other one is something that I only recently have become convicted about. And so this working through these verses, if it's been of no benefit to you, Thank you for being patient with me because it's been incredibly important and incredibly valuable. And so what I want to do is help us, I think, or I hope anyway, try to think through what this means, what these foundational things that we're talking about mean. And here's just one area of application that I want for us to consider together contemplate as we seek to apply these things and put them to use in our lives. Let's just take the matter of speech. I mean, we could take a whole lot of things, couldn't we? We could take another respectable sin. You know, those sins that we tolerate, that the women are engaged in learning about. And by the way, I've had no takers on my offer to any men who want to sit in on this thing and benefit as well. There are lots of respectable sins that we could consider and think about. And there are lots of not-so-respectable sins that we could think about, right? Look, wherever it is, let me say this to you, wherever it is on the continuum from the seemingly slight and inconsequential to the most grievous, the same spiritual calculus applies. 
the same spiritual calculus applies. And so let's just talk about this one area, this matter of speech, how I speak. It's an issue that's dealt with in the scriptures. It's an issue that is a real issue in the Christian life, isn't it? You look at Paul's letter here uh, to the Romans in, in chapter 12, verse 14. He says, bless those who persecute you. Now, that doesn't always involve speaking, but it certainly sometimes and many times does. Bless those who persecute you. That's going to involve words. That's going to involve intonations. That's going to involve inflection. What you say, the manner in which you say it. James makes a big deal of speech, doesn't he? James chapter 3, he talks about the good that the tongue can do. And he talks about the good that can be undone and the damage that can result from what we say, from the words we use and the manner in which we use them. He refers to the tongue, how it can do good and it can do harm. Paul in Ephesians makes reference to the tongue and to speech, and he encourages us that we not use corrupting talk. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up. And so here I am. Right, and this is where this is where we're going to try to practice these things that we've talked about. So here I am. I'm about to speak. I'm about to use words. I'm about to use gestures and facial expressions and intonations and all of the rest. I'm about to use a tongue. That's why Paul says, present your bodies a living sacrifice. I'm about to use my physical body. And maybe I'm at work and engaged in a conversation with a work associate. Or maybe I'm about to speak to one of my children. Or maybe I'm about to speak to my spouse. Or maybe I'm having a somewhat casual conversation with a neighbor. And maybe the situation at work is tense. Or maybe the situation at home is tense. And the conversation is turned in that direction and the tension can be felt. It's moved in a particular way and there is this great temptation for me in any of these settings to use language to speak in ways that are unhelpful and maybe even degrading. Maybe even degrading. And so here I am. Here I am in this moment about to say something. It seems to me, this is what I've been trying to help us understand, it seems to me that before I choose to say anything, and these things are choices, aren't they? These things are choices. Before I choose to say whatever it is I'm about to say, Paul is telling me that there is a prior choice to be made. There's a prior choice to be made. And it is there precisely at those moments that these principles, these things that we've been talking about in Romans chapter chapter 12, have to kick in. They have to kick in, folks. They have to begin to grip us and lay hold of us 
and become a pattern after which we make choices on a moment-by-moment basis. It's precisely at that moment that I'm saying to myself, before I say anything at all, I am saying to myself, Romans 12.1, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercies, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service, and do not be conformed to this world. Now, let's work it out, okay? We're freeze-framing a moment in time. Okay? That's how life is lived, folks. It's lived moment by moment. And we're freeze-framing a moment in time. And in this moment, what will I do? What will I do? See, we want a to-do list, don't we? We're pragmatists. Give me a to-do list. Give me a technique. Give me three steps. Give me a procedure. Give me something to do. What will I do? Well, it seems to me that what Paul is saying is this. The first thing we do is have in view the mercies of God. I urge you, therefore, brothers, in view of God's mercies. What's he saying? This is principle number one. Always, always have in my field of vision the mercies of God. We've just sung, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart, not be all else to me, save what you are. And what is Jesus Christ to me? He is the mercy of God. I urge you, brothers, therefore, in view of God's mercies. What are the mercies of God? What is the mercy of God? It's everything that Paul has been saying up to this point. It's everything that he's chronicled through these 11 chapters. That is the thing that in some very real sense has to obscure my vision of everything else. I am, as the boss put it in a song a long time ago, blinded by the light, which is Jesus Christ. On the basis of having in view the mercies of God, the love of God, in which he comes to the rescue of those who are in distress, evidencing his compassion for those who are in distress by acting in grace in Jesus Christ to redeem them from their distress, which gift is received by faith. And what is that all about? Well, it's about your justification. It is about the fact that God, on the basis of the finished work of Christ, Christ, having lived for you, died for you, been raised for you, and you, having received that by faith, have heard from him in his gospel a declaration of innocent, not guilty. And not only not guilty, but positively righteous. And not only are you entirely forgiven, entirely forgiven, fully cleansed, 
freed from the threat of condemnation, so that there is now reconciliation between you and the Father, and there is peace between you and the Father, a peace which no power in hell and no scheme of man can ever take away from you. Not only are you justified, reconciled, forgiven, and restored, but you are his child. You are his child. The adopted child of the God of heaven and earth. And you are an heir with Jesus of all of the Father's kingdom. That is your identity. That is who you are. That is the thing that is true about you above every other thing that is true about you. Okay, funny? Time for a funny? I went to the University of Michigan. I am embarrassed today. The Akron Zips nearly beat the University of Michigan in the big house. That is not who I am. Nor is any of the record of wrong accumulated over all of the years of my life who I am. I am the adopted child, positively forgiven, completely righteous, clothed in the righteousness of Christ, fully accepted by my Father who receives me with a smile on his face. That is who I am in this moment. But that's not all. This isn't just about my status and my standing. And this is perhaps the more critical thing, though that is not unimportant and it is a thing we never get away from. There is more. I not only have been freed from the threat of condemnation, but I have been united to Jesus Christ in his crucifixion, buried with him in his death, and raised to newness of life by virtue of my union with him. I've been united to Jesus Christ. There is a spiritual, you'll understand why this imagery works for me today, there is a spiritual umbilical cord that connects me to the triune God of heaven and earth, and it is from the triune God of heaven and earth, uniting me to Jesus Christ, my Savior, by the agency of the Holy Spirit, in whom, by whom, through whom, I am crucified, dead, buried, and raised to newness of life. I'm a new creature in Christ. I am a new creature in Christ. Do you want evidence of the new creation? You are that evidence by virtue of your union with Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's talking about in Romans 6, verses 1 and following. He uses the language of union with Christ, death and resurrection. And then he goes on to use the language of having a new master. My old master was sin leading to death. And remember verses 21 and 22 of Romans 6. When people are inclined and tempted to go back to the old master, the question is this, how was that working for you? Why, like a dog, would you want to return to your vomit? No, you've been raised from death to newness of life. And he goes on, having used this language of slavery and trying to convey to us that we've been freed from the bondage of a cruel master. 
He goes on to use this language then of marriage, telling us that we have died to the law. This old husband, we died, and because we died in Christ, we've been raised from death to life. We now may be given to another husband. That's Romans 7. Romans 7, 4, likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law. The old husband who beat you, berated you, only told you what was wrong with you. This is sleeping with the enemy, folks. But you have died to the law. And you have been raised so that you might be given to another, that you might belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, so that you might bear fruit for God. Here I am in this moment. And there's a choice that is to be made. But before that choice is made, there is a prior choice. Ah, this is who I am. This is what is true of me. Freed from the threat of condemnation. Crucified with Christ. Raised to newness of life in Christ. United to Him by the Holy Spirit who is the spiritual umbilical cord connecting me to my risen Savior. There's a great scene in the film Hoosiers. It's about a basketball team. And one of the players in a previous game got into a scuffle with an opposing player. And in the scuffle, they crashed into a trophy case and his shoulder was lacerated and they had to stitch him up and bandage him up for the next week's game. And in the next week's game... He has violent contact with an opposing player and the stitching in his shoulder rips apart. And so Gene Hackman, the boy's coach, says to the doctor, patch him up and put him back in the game. Now, if you know the movie and you know the story, then you know that precisely at that moment, If you remember this image, Gene Hackman says to the doctor, stitch him up, patch him up, put him back in the game. That, my friends, is the old Gene Hackman. The Gene Hackman who would do anything necessary to win a basketball game, even at the expense of one of his players. But you see, Gene Hackman in the intervening ten years has experienced a change. And as you see him walking across the basketball court, he's scratching his head fervently, gouging his own flesh. And he turns around to his player and says, sit on the bench. Sit on the bench. No, coach, I want to play. No. Because you see, I'm a new creature. And there are other things more valuable for me in this moment of time than my winning a basketball game. You're more valuable to me. Go sit on the bench. In this moment in time, the change that had taken place in his character manifested itself in a choice that led to a different kind of decision. This is who you are, folks. You are in Christ. You have a new standing, but even more than a new standing, 
something has happened in you. A real change has taken place. And when I find myself in this moment of time when Paul says, in very, I think this is immensely practical, before I say a word, before I speak, the mercies of God, who I really am, what God has really done, those things have to begin to kick in as a first principle for change in my life as a Christian. And then here's the second thing. Here I am. I'm contemplating this. I'm in this moment. And I'm going to make a choice. I'm going to speak in one way or the other. The first thing I'm reminded of is the mercies of God and who I really am. And the second thing I do, this is principle number two. It seems to me this is what Paul is saying. In view of all of this, who I am, what has happened in my life now, in this moment... I present my body, my tongue, my lips, my lungs, my brain, my cogitation that precedes the speaking of a word, preceded by the forming of that word in my mind. I present my Body, tongue, lungs, vocal cords, teeth, lips, the whole enchilada. I present myself to God in this moment. It's language that is used. We've looked at this in the past. It's language that he has used. He used it in chapter 6. And in effect, he says, look, you've died. You've been buried. You've been raised to newness of life in Christ Jesus. Consider yourself dead to sin, alive to God, and do not go on presenting your members, that is your bodies, as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life. Present. That's what I do. In this moment, I present myself, conscious of the mercies of God. And this is where I'm really helped by Francis Schaeffer and the illustration of Mary before the Lord and Gabriel speaking to her and saying to her, in effect, you're going to give birth to the Messiah of Israel and the Savior of the world. And she's saying, how can this be? How's this going to happen? And Gabriel's response is to direct her attention away from herself to the sovereign God of heaven and earth, who by the agency of the Holy Spirit, moving into her life, invading her life, produces in her what she is powerless to produce in herself. And she says, as she stands before the Lord, Behold the bond slave of the Lord, be it done to me according to his will. Be it done to me. Now look, look, in our particular tradition, we are so fearful of subjectivism. We're so fearful of pacifism. 
But folks, there is a right passivity in the Christian life. And this is where Francis Schaeffer, all of those years ago in his book, True Spirituality, was profoundly helpful to me. In any given moment, in view of the mercies of God, I am Mary before the God of heaven and earth. I present myself to him and I call upon him in that moment to do in me what I in myself am powerless to produce in myself. Basically what I'm saying is, Holy Spirit of God, gin up the new life that you have birthed in me. Gin it up. And as I have presented myself to Jesus, Romans chapter 7, as I have presented myself to Jesus, who is my new husband, I am united to him that he might bear fruit in me to God. That's the language. That's the imagery. In view of God's mercies, I present myself to God. It seems to me this is the essence of what John Piper is getting out in his book, Future Grace. And I guess it's caused some controversy, but I'm rereading it and reading it with the folks at the refuge. And I'm having a magical time with it. How do I live the Christian life? This is, it seems to me, John's answer. How do I live this Christian life? I live this Christian life with an eye always to bygone grace, what he calls bygone grace, grace that is so evident in the past at the cross. And grace which is not only evident at the cross, but which has been cast across the days of my life down to the present day. I live this Christian life in this moment with an eye to bygone grace as the ground and basis and encouragement for believing, for trusting that in the next moment God will give me the grace that I need for that moment. And what do I need when I'm in that conversation, friends? What do I need when there is before me this possibility that I could speak words of harm or words that are degrading, what is it that I need in that moment, friends, in the next moment? Not this moment, this freeze-framed moment where I am contemplating all of this, but the next moment when I most certainly will speak. I don't know about you, but what I need is the grace of God in Jesus Christ. And in this moment, based upon this long string of moments stretching back to the cross and even beyond the cross, back into the councils of eternity where the Father loved me in Christ before the foundation of the world, all of that bygone grace gives me confidence in this moment to believe God, to trust Him for the grace that I will need to say the right thing that I need to say in the next moment. God, have mercy upon me in the next moment. Because I need it. And those around me desperately need for me to know that I need it because they need for me to speak words of peace and grace and comfort and kindness 
and correction where correction is needed. Let me just say to you again something that I said a couple of weeks ago when we looked at that word present. This presenting is not a one and done thing. The tense of the verb makes that very, very clear. The focus of the tense of this verb is on the action, not its relationship to time. Do you see that? A past tense connects an action to the past. A past perfect connects a past action to its continuing effect into the present. This is neither of those things. This is an aorist. And in the aorist, the attention is upon the action disconnected from time. Present, 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 present your bodies. And Paul then says, this is your reasonable service. We talked about this last week or two weeks ago. There is a spiritual logic at work here. Because this is who I am, this is what I do. I present myself to God. I present myself to my new and gracious master so that he might bear through me the fruit of righteousness. And here's a place to insert just a little word which requires a sermon of its own, but a little word of pastoral encouragement. Paul and everybody else knows that you're going to stumble and fall. And so in that moment where you're confronted with this choice and you're speed dialing through all of these mercies of God and reminding yourself that before the decision, there's a decision that has to be made. Just remember that what Christ secured for you on the cross is absolute acceptance with the Father so that when, not if, but when you blow it, you do not forfeit his smile. You do not forfeit the peace that Christ has secured for you. You are not suddenly exposed to condemnation. You may be exposed to correction. But what father doesn't lovingly correct his children? What father doesn't lovingly expose character defects, throw his arm around him and say, my son, my daughter, I'm in this with you. Let's work on it together. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 8.1. Where Paul, this is an illustration of the point I'm making, where Paul, having been perfectly autobiographical and perfectly honest in Romans chapter 7, has said, this is what I find. This is what I find going on in me. In this moment, at this moment, when a decision needs to be made, I find that there is a law operative, that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, 
Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will deliver me from this lunacy of harming others, degrading others by the things that I say? It's nuts. Who will deliver me? And notice what Paul says. Run down to the Christian bookstore closest to you and get the latest technique book on how to keep your mouth shut when you find yourself in the position of saying the wrong thing at the wrong time. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this in this moment that I find myself in? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, my Lord. And then he says, and this is a very, very rough paraphrase. Then he says, I get it that you're going to stumble and fall. I get it that you're going to fail. But just remember this. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Never forget when you stumble and fall, your father wants you back. And there's no threat of condemnation. And then he goes on in verse verse 2 to remind them, and 3, that what God, that what we could not do because of sin and the law, God has done in Christ Jesus. And what is that all about? It is a throwback to Romans 6. Christ has conquered Sin and death to free us from its bondage so that we might walk in the new way of the Spirit. So here I am in this moment. A choice is before me. How do I think about it? What am I going to do? Oh, keep in view the mercies of God. Oh, in that moment, stand before God and do what every true sensible, wise, needy Christian has done, including Paul, call upon Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, here am I. Be it done to me according to your will. And then remember this last principle, and we've been weaving in and out of this. But remember this, Paul summons us, calls us, Away from conformity to this age, an age which is dying. Why would you want to be conformed to an age that is dying? Why would you want to be conformed to something that is passing away? No, the implication is don't be conformed to this age, but by virtue of who you are, because of what you are, seek by God's grace in Jesus Christ to be conformed to the age to come, the age which has arrived. Seek to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. Seek that. Don't let this age, characterized by all kinds of bad choices, bad habits, foolishness, and everything else, don't let that conform you to itself. But move in the direction of conformity to the image of Christ. Okay? Now it's time for you to make your decision. Now it's time for you to decide what it is 
you're going to say. Do you get this? Do you see this? Before I make a choice, there is another choice to be made. It is a fight. It is a battle. And Paul admonishes Timothy that he fight the good fight of faith. And the good fight of faith is not having right notions in my head. The good fight of faith in this moment with the mercies of God in view, as I present myself to my new master and husband, I look in dependence upon him for him to give me the enabling grace so that I make the choice that is the right choice for me to make, to speak words that build up and that do not tear down. Words of truth and beauty and kindness, and correction, to be sure, in a manner after the manner of the one who has loved me and given himself for me. Doctrine, reason, practical, I hope, application. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, Give us grace. You've begun a work in us. You will bring it to completion at your own appearing. Lord Jesus, until you appear, would you work in us those graces which we then, in fear and trembling, work out in the daily business of living this Christian life so that you might be praised, so that the world might see a difference. Hear us, each one. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.